And welcome back to Tea and Robots. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Hoover. And I'm Emily Stark, and this week we have rejoining us one of the co-directors of the MPCR Lab, William Hahn. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. So, Will, do you know why you're here? Uh, maybe you can tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a no. So we brought Will to co-host this podcast because Will is what I would describe as an enthusiastic optimist when it comes to thinking about the future of AI and how it's going to have impacts on society. So sitting next to me is Will, and on the other side we have our trusty longtime co-host Stephen Hoover. And Stephen is someone that I would describe as a charming pessimist. Do you did, agree did with you, that? Did you learn how to compliment people at the same time in one of your psychology courses? Probably. Is that the charming part of this? But <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd identify with the pessimist part. So Stephen is taking the stance more of that, obviously AI is something that's important and is in some ways inevitable, but he's very aware of the possible negative ramifications that this kind of technology could have on society. Essentially what we're going to do today is have somewhere between civil conversation and cage match about just what we see it happening in society as this kind of artificial intelligence starts to evolve. Sound good? Perfect. Sounds great. All right, so I actually have a list of questions cultivated somewhat from my own brain, but I called some really intelligent high schoolers. We're going to do a, a quick little shout out at Manhattan High in Kansas, um, where there's a group of really phenomenal students that are actually doing university level research in their senior years of high school. So I have a connection there. And I called them this morning and said, hey, when you think AI in society, what do you think? And without even being prompted, they kind of structured their questions in three major ways. There's kind of AI as a concept. Um, how AI will interact with society, and then how AI will react with each one of us. So those are kind of the three legs of this exciting journey that we're going to be taking. I'm going to go ahead and just kind of open it up. The first thing that was brought up in my call with these high schoolers, there's one that, that argued potentially AI is just a matter of semantics. So essentially the question is, what is AI? Is it building a connection of, of interconnected neuron-type computational tools? or units? Is it something that has consciousness? What is consciousness? How could we say that? Is it something that has some kind of theory of mind where it's aware of other people? So first off, let's just get off the bat with explaining what we mean by AI. And could there ever be such a thing as AI depending on how we define it? Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about is how AI really is a moving target. It's kind of always bumping along. It's like the carrot on the stick. And you wonder, is it something we're getting to or is it something we're aiming towards? What's amazing is most of the things that we all use now on a daily basis, whether it's Google search or speech recognition to talk instead of typing out on our phone, these are all artificial intelligence capabilities. And if we went back you know, a couple decades, people would have talked about the AI research that allow you to have a smart photo album that can quickly nice go, yeah, yeah. You know, nowadays we can just say, show me every Jimmy, and it just sort of pulls up everybody in your phone of that person. It's clearly a moving target. We can see this when it goes back to uh, beating, what was the chess master? Yeah, uh, so, Garrett Kasparov. Yeah, so once computers were able to beat him, people said, oh, that's not artificial intelligence. They programmed it. And then it, the moving target, I couldn't agree more. But when I'm speaking about artificial intelligence, I'm just talking about systems that process information. Exactly. And what's really interesting is like the chess problem, people used to talk about that as a sort of metaphor for intelligence, that this was something that computers couldn't do. And they thought, well, they can do arithmetic, but they can't do something like chess. Well, then they could do chess. And they say, well, they can do that, but they can't do speech recognition. Well, now they can do speech recognition. And, and so on down the line. I think part of the problem is that AI, it's a victim of its own success. Anytime something like this works, it becomes a product. You know, we put it into an app and we, we start to sell it. Right. And I think the high schooler had another point on this, which is consciousness and intelligent systems. Uh, we have to deal with the problem of intersubjectivity when we're talking about other people. It's a big word to mean, how do I know that you're thinking and you're an agent in the system? I don't know that you're, there's something that's like to be you. I just assume that. We don't know that it can happen in an artificial system. Something that's not carbon-based is usually what people are talking about when they're talking about artificial, where they mean man-made. It might not be relevant. Actually, I'm going to jump in here just because I, I see an application of my cognitive psychology practices, and that doesn't always happen in this lab. What you're talking about there, this kind of awareness that other people have some notion of themselves that's not the same as you, most cognitive psychologists, or at least the ones that I know, but we'll see if people agree with me, would term that more theory of mind, which that's really what it's defined as, this theory of mind of saying that I am aware that other people have thoughts um, and have their own mind. And then consciousness 
there are a couple of different ways that you can define it, but one of the reasons I gave you this question is because that's kind of the big problem in cognitive psychology right now, is what is consciousness? So we're having a hard time even defining that for people, um, much less robots. I'd accept that. I don't have any evidence to counter it, and I don't have a reason why. It might not be relevant, because whether or not these systems have an experience of what it's like to be them doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah, you know, Marvin Minsky talked about consciousness as a, he called it a suitcase word. That it's really dozens of capabilities that we have and that we sort of give them a collective name like consciousness. When I think about that, I sort of challenge, well, what is it that we're conscious of? Are we conscious of our big toe right now? Right? Are we conscious, we are. you know, of our left ear? You know, I think if we were conscious of ourselves, then we could very easily sit down and take an anatomy quiz. But we can't. We don't even have a parts list. Right? I don't have available to myself, you know, the list of all the pieces that are needed to keep me alive. And so when I think about being conscious of those, I'm not even really aware that they even exist. Another way, you know, think about your self-portrait. I mean, do you think you know what your face looks like? If we could, then we could just sit down and sketch it out. I can't, right? It would take me years in art school to even be able to reproduce my own face. And now that we're recording our voices, when we play this back, will we recognize our own voice, right? So even something like that, to think, are we conscious of what we sound like? At least not to others. That's very difficult for us to do. So it sounds like we don't really have a clear definition or stance on a conscious AI. So I do want to bring in this notion of general artificial intelligence, how that will be different from the suitcase word of consciousness. I think the distinction between artificial general intelligence and consciousness might not be worth exploring because of how big the topic is, though. It might be that we could table it just for this discussion, not that it's not interesting scientifically. Uh, but that we could focus on the distinction between what we consider general intelligence more broadly and the narrow intelligence we have now and how we're going to transition from one to the other and what are the implications of both. What do you define as general intelligence or artificial general intelligence? When we think of artificial intelligence, typically we think of a single function, right? Something that can, maybe the Tesla can drive a car, but it can't knit or cook or sew or, you know, do anything interesting. Uh, of that type. You couldn't get it to do something else. You couldn't say, all right, I don't need you to, to do that. You know, watch the stove for a minute to make sure this thing doesn't boil over. It, it has no concept of anything like that. And so these artificial intelligence, they're really idiot savants. You know, they're truly savants and they can do these amazing tasks that might take an extraordinary amount of human patience to sort through. The ImageNet challenge, for example, is 1.2 million images coming from a thousand different categories. So imagine taking that as like a Scantron test. You know, you've got a thousand little bubbles you got to fill in and no one would sit down and take a million question quiz, but the AI can do it. So it's sort of a savant in that, but, but it's also an idiot in that if you asked it to do something else, say, can you write me a poem, that particular AI couldn't do that at all. Now, another AI could create you a poem, but then it couldn't tell you the difference between a photograph of a cat and a dog. So I think the, the hope and the dream of general artificial intelligence, or AGI, or however you want to say it, is the idea that we would have a whole collection of these idiot savants. And maybe that's sort of like a good model for the human brain. You know, that we have all of these different <laughs> regions and modules. You know, one of them knows how to talk. One of them knows how to listen. The thing that knows how to listen doesn't know how to talk. And the thing that knows how to talk doesn't know how to listen and doesn't know how to see. And that thing doesn't know how to stand up and so on. And it's sort of what our brain does is sort of pass the buck on to another module that knows how to handle what's happening. Right. So the consciousness comes in here. We're ruled by the hidden committee of the people we're not aware of. And those people are idiot savants who then make our decisions and then we agree with later. Exactly. No. Exactly. But then, you know, it's... it's we can't just throw out what they call the hard problem of consciousness, right? right. I mean, it's, I think you can have a whole discussions on that, of you know, the redness of red and the taste of strawberries and all that. Where does, where does that come from? And I think these are still open questions. Before we move on, does that sufficiently answer what you wanted to ask, Emily, or did we just pass the problem on? And Hey, I'm not really in charge here. I'm just trying to get you guys to get really excited and maybe start yelling at each other. So, <laughs> you know, it was an interesting answer. That's for sure. Um, I'm sort of getting imagery of rock'em, sock'em robots. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can have that as our little icon this week. Um, no, so I think we, we kind of started to get closer, or at least as close as I think anyone's going to get, to this idea of what we're after when we say AI. And granted, it should be mentioned that AI is very much a buzzword. And so while our lab technically works on AI, we work on a very specific part that we call deep learning. I'm not going to get far into that, but I do want to make it clear that we're not creating Skynet. Absolutely. I think that's a great point, you know. I think historically, even myself, I would have been concerned that if we have an intelligent agent that you're, say, for example, asking it to sort through millions of photos of cats and dogs, you know, if this thing is truly alive in the sense that we are, well, then that's sort of not fair. Or it's what is its compensation in terms of reward for doing that task? 
you know, if we have real doctors, they want the weekends off to play golf. And so as we get a robot doctor and they've performed 10 million surgeries, are they just going to at one point say, I'm tired of this. I want to go explore another option. What I think is very, very promising and exciting for humanity is that when we look at the systems we have now, these famous architectures that can solve these problems like ImageNet, when we open up the deep learning, we can see that it's just math on the inside, that there's clearly no one at home. There's no tortured soul inside this program that you're sort of, you know, poking it with a stick and asking it to answer your questions. That in a very real way, we could think of this as a giant Excel spreadsheet. And that gives me a lot of hope that we can create these tools that humanity very much needs sooner than later. And yet we're not having to create an artificial life that we then uh, have to sort of torture to, to do our bidding. That kind of brings up an interesting thing. I'd like to ask two questions, I guess. One of them is, what do you think is likely to happen in the future? Timescale ignored here. So where do you think AI is going to go? Do you think so we're going to get... Actually, we're going to get around to, to questions like that. We do have a structure. So hopefully we'll answer that question. Okay, and then the second one, you're talking about the verifiability of, of this math. We have a spreadsheet of numbers, and hopefully we can look at that and intuit or reason our way into finding out what this system is processing and how it's processing that. The YouTube channel Computer File posted a video the other day with a paper from the Machine Intelligence Research Institute on logical induction. It's 131 pages on how you can ask questions that a system would process. So we've got probability. Uh, you roll a six-sided die one time, and then what's the odds that any of those numbers on the die? One in six, if you don't know, right? But then you can ask, okay, well, if you're computing a problem, what's the square root of 17? What's the 10th digit past the decimal? Well, you could work it out on a piece of paper, but you can't ask that in a probability statement because it, it may as well be asking what is true. It's true, and it's just because we can count it. Um, we don't really have a way of processing these larger systems or dealing with that amount of data. So... I don't know that the math necessarily helps us there. We're definitely going to be able to use AI to explore mathematical ideas that are too big to fit on a chalkboard, for example. So the famous one is, is the graph coloring problem. So you imagine you have a graph of the United States or something. You want to color each state such that every state has a different color than the ones it's touching. How many different colors do you need? I know. Oh, because what do you got? Uh, six. Oh. Five. Nope. Four? There you go. Uh, so, so it's called the, the four-color mm -hmm. theorem. And so it's actually this amazing proof because it's not obvious that you would only need four. I mean, I would think you would absolutely need like six at least kind of thing or, or maybe more because you could think that they can have a very weird geometry, right? No one said anything about how these states are actually drawn on the map. And what's interesting about that proof is they sort of broke it up into subcases, right? Solve case A, solve case B, and prove each one. The problem is it breaks up into a few thousand cases. And so people in the 70s started building computer programs to tackle these kinds of proofs. And eventually it was able to come to a sort of a, com a computer-assisted proof, as they called it. But the interesting thing is the full details of the proof never passed through any human mind. Hmm. And so what does it mean to say that we, do we know that proof or is that a human understood proof? And I think it's a very interesting concept. Uh, Danny Hillis talks about going beyond engineering and starting to not necessarily build things, but yeah, create things that we don't fully control things that we negotiate with and that serve great utility, but we can't understand exactly every piece in the system. And I think that's a really interesting idea. It's sort of like how things were in the ancient world. People didn't exactly understand the forest, but they were able to negotiate with it and have a comfortable life. Well, since the computer is the only one that really knows why it's four colors, I don't feel as bad for getting the answer wrong twice. It's been a while since I've taken any graph theory, so I'm gonna cite that as my excuse. But moving on to kind of the next question, another interesting topic that one of the high schoolers brought up, and I was not, I'd never heard of this, I guess, before in, in this light, but he argued that AI should not essentially be a thing. First off, a conscious AI is impractical, but beyond that, he says that AI would be more efficient if it is unconscious, essentially, if it doesn't have consciousness. He was making the claim that these tools should only do what they're programmed to do, that allowing them more generalizability would make them less efficient. I had not heard that stance before, and I was wondering if either of you had thoughts on it, um, if you agreed with it, if you disagreed, and why so. I think it's a really great idea, and I think it's an interesting way to approach consciousness itself. Wait, can I interrupt? Yeah, what, yeah, please. what do you think is the great idea in that? Basically, that consciousness is the things that you're not good at. Consciousness is the things that your brain is still not quite sure if it has the right recipe. And so, for example, I'm not conscious right now of how my mouth is moving and my tongue and so on to make these words. I'm not even conscious of the sounds. I'm trying to think in idea space. 
And if I were to become conscious of those sounds, I'd lose the meaning of the word, right? You ever repeat a word over and over again and just sort of falls apart into weird noises and you're thinking like, what? What are these sounds? You can't be both conscious of the sounds and the idea at the same time, or at least it's very difficult. So you think of someone who's a sort of a master at something, like a pro golfer or you know something like that, and you think, you know, when they take the swing, are they really conscious of what's happening? You know, to be any good at this, you kind of have to go into this Zen moment where you're not really paying too much attention about it. You're going into this muscle memory kind of thing. Maybe your cerebellum takes over and it has sort of a pre-programmed execution. So you think of like walking up and down the stairs, you're not really conscious of your ankles and toes because your ankles and toes are expert at stairs at this point. If something gets pushed to your consciousness, you're not exactly sure what to do. You're still computing out the details. Where other things like basic movements and hand gestures and sitting up and you know, walking and stuff, these were experts at this point, and we don't have to be conscious of them anymore. I took the question in a different way. I thought of it as a black swan, essentially, saying we know it's there's no such thing as black swans, and then that's just his statement right there. He's saying, well, it might be more efficient, or it will be more efficient that they're not conscious. Well, we don't know, because we haven't seen a conscious general intelligence, so I'm not willing to make a, a truth statement on whether or not it will be more or less efficient. We don't know yet because we haven't gotten there, would be my answer. That's a fair point. But ethics, yeah, we would have to worry if I had my vacuum cleaner and it started complaining that I never let it go outside. Yes, we have to think about what would it take to instill the sort of goals and aspirations for a vacuum cleaner to want to be outside. Do we have to put those into a vacuum cleaner? And, you know, I think we really need to think carefully about that. A lot of cases, we just want this thing to be a knee-jerk kind of reaction and it's sort of not alive and we can maybe demonstrate that by opening it up and looking at the internals of the AI and say there's not a reality. But if you were to build an AI that, for example, built dreams and then try to, you know, build goals <laughs> from those dreams and then tries to fulfill the, you know, and then recruit members of a society to build those dreams together, you know, that's, you're getting at the edge of that kind of stuff. The big question that, of course, was asked and will be asked every time that any of us from this lab ever gives any kind of presentation ever is what about AI and the economy? What about the jobs? This is a pretty common concern, so I'm not really going to delve into the nitty-gritty of it. Essentially, if we train these AI, these these robots, which just as a side note, robots are not AI. Uh, this is something that apparently is, is blowing up Reddit pretty recently, is that any time that you see a, an article about AI, they have like a robot arm, and we want to make sure we make the distinction that the robot is not the AI. The, the robot arm is a robot that may or may not have AI in it. You can't see AI unless you're looking at the math part. And most of the jobs will be taken by robots that do not have bodies. They will just be right. software. It will just be somewhere. intelligent systems. Yeah. Yes. And that piece of software might, you know, take a lot of jobs. So here's, a, <laughs> <laughs> so here's the first question is, do you think people will be more afraid of AI that they can see or AI that they can't see? So AI that lives in some kind of physical robot or AI that is solely on a computer chip? That's a great question. It's hard to say. I mean, you look at some of these, you know, Boston dynamic type robots, you know, marching around. These things are a little, you know, unsettling. Um, yeah, that's hard to say. That's a great question. I'm more afraid personally of just intelligent systems distributed across things like the Internet. So something that can multiply itself, that cannot be taken down by any one entity. It doesn't have to manifest in any physical form. Just its ability to process information could be dangerous. So say it gets into the water supply, the power grid. It has some goal or value where humans are getting in the way, and then we could destroy ourselves via that, and there's no way to stop it. When they no talk about the Internet way. of Things, like right. as all these things essentially become robots, like you're saying the mm -hmm. water network is essentially now a robotic system. Right. If we shut down the power grid in the United States, for example, millions of people are going to lose their lives just from that alone because they can't get running water, they can't pump gas, and they can't get food. So maybe we need to think about using AI to increase the sort of resiliency of those infrastructures. Right. There's going to be an example of new jobs, right? So there's a job that didn't exist 25 years ago. How do you take a water network, make it a robot, and then make it a secure robot? That's like a brand new job. And there's new jobs every day. I just saw something pop this morning of a, a professional live streamer, and they were talking about how when they play video games online, they're different sources of income. And they've mm -hmm. got donations and ads and sponsorships and all of this. And you think if you went back, you know, 35 or, you know, years ago or 50 years ago or, or longer and 100 years ago and try to explain what that person does for a living. Right. And say, well, we have these, these video games, see? And, <laughs> well, it's, not li it's like a board game, but, you know, it's made out of light. And, and it would be very complicated to explain that and how that sort of creates income, but that's a good job. This person makes a lot of money. 
And when we take this to not just narrow systems, but more generalized systems, we could see, I think several famous people have said, billionaires grace our magazine covers and just become the only people walking around with protected security in their glass dome and nobody else has the access to resources or information, but they're living really well because they own all the systems that do all the relevant work. Yeah, I think do that's you think that we, that's possible? Or do you, uh, well, I think it's happening right now. I think right. there's something we very actively need to think about because it's going to be easier to concentrate wealth with AI. And so we want to, to very actively have these kinds of discussions sooner rather than later. I think one thing that's optimistic about the jobs is that we might have better jobs, jobs that provide more meaning. I came across something with one of these documentaries and they had that certain primates, when they live in the, in the jungle, they basically chew all day that their foodstuffs are so poor in nutrient that they basically have to just chew leaves for like eight hours in a row to basically get a meal. And now in the modern world, we can have a granola bar or, you know, protein bar in like a few seconds and, you know, basically get a meal in, in, in a minute if we have to. And so I just think about that in terms of where we have to spend our time, what we think of as sort of labor and job, well, most people you have to keep the fire going and chew these leaves and maintain your, your, your structure that you were living in. It took a lot of work you right. know, to regulate crop cycles and that kind of stuff. And so as we're freed from those sort of burdens, those low-level tasks, I think we can think of things that are more meaningful, sort of higher-level things that for a time were, you know, only available to sort of a, a certain class that could afford to be artists, for example. So here's my question to that. Is there a limit to the higher-meaning stuff that we're going to find? Is there, is there ever going to be a time when the AI can do everything meaningful ever and we're just sitting there and we're reduced essentially to that same state of chewing the leaves? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope not, that as we transition, it's been said, from apes to angels, right? That, you know, what is it that we could be? What is it that we could become in the far future? And I think we've only, you know, begun to start thinking about that. Because as humans, even in the modern world, we have to still spend most of our day thinking about, all right, what are we going to eat? Where are we going to sleep? And how are we going to do for clothes? And all this kind of stuff. That most people around the planet still have to think about these things all the time. So I found a quote here that I just pulled up. I was thinking about this. I really like it. Was, it's from John Adams. And it says... I must study politics and war, that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons also study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and architecture, in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, tapestry, and porcelain. And so I really like that idea that we are struggling to get to this next layer, so the next generation can pursue what they want to pursue. The Future of Life Institute has some good information on this. Uh, I believe I'm quoting the right website. So Max Tegmark, the author of Life 3.0, he's a physicist who does research on artificial intelligence at MIT. And he, his book is a popular science book. Most people can read through it fairly easily. What he'd like to do is have people crowdsource. What do you think your perfect world would be? And how could you create a system that would help you with that? Mm -hmm. I think that's what we need. You know, you hear now about, it's almost an oxymoron, but they talk about experimental philosophy. You know, philosophy is the idea that you sit in your armchair and you think about the world. But the new take on that is, no, you should go out and measure it. Ask people. Survey people. Ask right. a million people what they think about the philosophical. In this case, mm -hmm. what, do you, what could humanity become? Right. So to bring this back to the economy, what happens if we are all released from our daily responsibilities and we're able to sit there and be philosophical or artists or whatever that next higher level um, task is that we, we don't even know yet because we can't possibly imagine a world where we don't have the burdens of everyday life right now. What happens with the actual economy? If the robots are doing all of the things, or the, the AI plus robots maybe, are able to provide for us, are able to provide food and shelter and whatnot, will the economy as a whole just crash? Will we no longer need to have any kind of currency? Or how will we exchange value between one another? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. You know, we don't really know, and we're probably going to need different types of economic systems that hopefully build on the features of the success that we've seen over throughout history, and then add some pieces that we don't have now. It's been said that you can't really have an economy on painting and poetry. I mean, what? how would that work? What would that look like? People talk about how AI is going to lead to sort of a, a world of post-scarcity. I'm not so sure that that's the case. I mean, I am very optimistic, but I'm not so sure that we're just going to have everything. You know, I don't think that AI is just going to create plenty, um, because what will that mean? Uh, right now, when we think of, you know, the, uh, you know, half a liter of water or something, if I spill it, you think, okay, well, you lost a little bit of water, but it's not worth a tremendous amount, right? Water, water and electricity, they're very inexpensive, you know, a few cubic feet of dirt 
it's not that big a deal. But in the future, you might be able to have an AI that'll take that dirt and, you know, decompile it and re-3D print it into a tiny spaceship or something. You know, something in incredibly useful. And so then I think people might actually compete for resources more in the future. And so we'll have to have an advanced economic system, maybe built off blockchain or some sort of these modern mathematical technologies that allow us to keep track of contributions that might not be traditional. Maybe they're more on the creative side or maybe they're on, you know, just the general humanity side, right? People who are, their job is to think about where humanity is going. We don't really have a career for that per se now, but we might. There was a conference of radiologists at the end of the conference or at the end of the day of a conference. They showed them pictures of scans and said, is there a tumor here? Is there not a tumor here, et cetera? And they had eye tracking hardware and software to see where they were looking at. And what they did actually is they put little pictures of gorillas around the scan just to see if they saw the gorillas, if they lingered on them. And they showed their eye actually passed over the gorilla. But they asked like afterwards if there was anything unusual about the scan. Um, and you would think that if you were prompted with that question, you would mention, well, there was a small primate running around. <laughs> However, no one was even really aware that the gorilla was there. They had had such bad fatigue after the entire day of the conference. And then there's another issue of, I heard this in one of my psych classes, um, if you get a group of, I think it's either seven or 12 pigeons together and train them to detect like tumors in these scans, at some point, if you take the majority vote from either seven or 12 or however many pigeons, they're able to detect tumors just as good as one radiologist. So the question is, clearly, we're not as good as we could possibly be. If we get to the point that some form of AI can detect the tumors, then that would theoretically be a tool for the doctor. But then what happens if and when it could become more developed and essentially replace the doctor? Is that something that you think is possible? Certainly in the near term, it'll actually increase the demand and likelihood of radiological medicine. You know, that's amazing about the gorillas, right? It's, it's amazing, because you imagine that's you or someone you care about, and the part that matters is that little gorilla, and you want to make sure that people really see this stuff. So I think a couple things. I mean, one, there's a lot of people on the planet right now that just can't have access to radiology, whether it's because of where they live, there aren't any radiologists, or just because of the expense, and just because it's not super practical right now. Um, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, I have a headache, I want to get a brain scan. They're going to think, oh, geez, maybe you need one because you sound kind of nuts because that's not the appropriate reaction to having a headache. And namely because the doctor is just not going to spend enough time looking at your head scan. You know, you get a millimeter slice, you get a picture for every millimeter you are tall. So that's just a lot of slices for the doctor to look through. It's been projected if we look around the world globally of how many radiologists we're going to need in the next 30 years. With our current system, think of how long it takes to become a radiologist. You gotta go to college, you gotta go to medical school, you gotta do a residency, it takes forever, then you do board certification. It can take a long time. If we run the numbers, it's gonna take about 300 years to train the radiologists we'll need for the next 30 years. So something globally, we just needs to be done. And I think it's interesting for a lot of people around the world, the first time they ever go on the internet, it's on a smartphone. You know, most people on the planet now will never use dial-up, for example, right? Most people never have, never will use dial-up. So the first time they encounter internet, it'll be broadband mobile. I think for a lot of people, the first time they get high quality healthcare, it might be an AI. And so I think that's, that's very promising. And I think it'll also help radiologists. Right now, radiologists will be rather hesitant to offer you a scan, certainly a full body scan. They would very much try to talk you out of that. But if that doctor knew that there was a very competent AI that could run through that whole stack in 30 seconds and give you a nice report to the doctor in English, about what the doctor should focus on, I think that would be very useful. Yeah, this is kind of related to the gorilla problem. So you're talking about, do we think that doctors could be supplemented or replaced by AGI? Was that roughly your question? Essentially, yeah. So Stuart Russell has what he calls the gorilla problem, which is when we go back to our primate ancestors and we say, pretend they had a meeting and that they could converse and speak with each other. And they said, hey, we're going to create a species that is different from ourselves and is much smarter than ourselves, and is going to be able to write down information and transmit it to each other, and they're going to be able to do much more than we would. Should we create that system? And that system is humans in this analogy. We don't know that they would necessarily make that decision, because look at how we treat them now. We lock them in cages, we've destroyed a lot of their environment. It doesn't necessarily look optimistic for them. Granted, I don't know if they're thinking about that, or if they have the capability of doing it. But we do, and we're kind of doing the same thing with artificial general intelligence here. So we are somewhat intelligent systems, we process information, we think about it. Uh, are we going to be able to make something smarter than ourselves? If we keep improving, it's very likely, or we would argue that it's likely to occur. Should we do it? And that's where I'm at. 
You know, it's really like the scale of things. You know, I, I love that idea of the gorillas. You know, I always think of like the oak trees, similar conversation. If the oak trees could talk, be like, well, the squirrels are going to start showing up. Because, and, and, <laughs> you know, at one point it was just plants on, on the planet. And, and now we have animals. Samuel Butler talked about the, the mechanical kingdom. And now, and this was in the 1860s, and he talked about the rise of the mechanical kingdom. And that now we have a new branch of life. I mean, and this is sort of what Darwin gave us, the idea of evolution that was in there. The idea that humanity is going to change by necessity. And that, you know, Carl Sagan said, it's not going to be us that makes it to the future. It's going to be something very near to us, but hopefully with some of our better characteristics and less of the negative ones. I think science fiction is always a good way to think about this kind of stuff, or at least that's where I like to get these, some of these ideas. And Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, they both, in interviews, talk about the book that inspired them the most was called The First and Last Men. So when we think about what are the first and last people, you know, the story was about how we're going to create a, sort of a children, humanity's children. And then they're going to have grandchildren and then there'll be great great grandchildren so it's, a, it's a, maybe a hundred years old this story or maybe more and it sort of goes through these what do these different species look like right so it's a very strange question we don't know you guys are actually agreeing that this agi this artificial generalized intelligence is the next evolutionary step yeah i think that would be fair to say i i think it's likely to occur and i think that there are problems i don't know if we want to say next evolutionary step it will happen it's a change over time Evolution, some people would define as changing allele frequencies over time. It doesn't have alleles in the way that we're developing it now. So, Yogi Berra said, the future ain't what it used to be. And I, I really love that expression. And, you know, we, we can't really anticipate it because with AI, these sort of the graphics processing thing that came out of video games sort of came out out of nowhere. And, you know, we think about it was hard to predict that because people were thinking we we're going to have to have these very specialized AI, expensive supercomputers. And then we got this uh, consumer chip, you know, off the shelf to, for, for virtual reality. And now it's sort of moving the whole field at, at hyperspeed. We don't know how this is going to merge. We could have quantum machine learning is coming right down the line. It's going to be here sooner than later. And then we'll have things like synthetic biology. And so it's not just that we'll have more intelligence. We'll have, we'll be able to change our DNA and maybe we'll have an artificial intelligence. And, and you could say, well, I want to change my hair color to this, or I want eyes that turn into sunglasses, or I want to be able to see in the dark or whatever else you can imagine. We're going to be mixing those in too. You know, humanity is not going to have to compete with one successor species. We're going to have multiple spin-off startup projects kind <laughs> right. of thing where there's some that are robots and there's some that are sort of modifying their DNA. And, and then I'd like to say, you know, maybe the Amish are onto something. I think we should have at least a, a, a section of humans that think, okay, let's yeah. just keep a stable version. You know, with software development, and you go to like the GitHub, they have the stable version and they have what they call the nightly build. <laughs> right? And the nightly build is like, well, that's from last night and there might be a lot of bugs in it. And the stable version is like, look, this has been around for years. We're going to keep it just how it is and everybody can learn to use it real well. And that's why I didn't necessarily agree to the evolution thing. Because in the same way that we're competing these systems more intelligent than ourselves, we also compete against bacteria daily. They're just as evolved as we are, if not more, if you want to talk about time scales. They're still around. We're still around just different. How many chromosomes does a potato have compared to a human? It's no you know, idea. It's, it's more, right? A it's, lot it's, more. it's surprising, right? You think of how many sort of evolutionary pressures there are in the potato field kind of thing. So to move away from doctors, there was um, a friend that I knew back in my undergrad. I had posted my call for interesting questions on Facebook, and she brought up an interesting point as well. And we've kind of danced around this in previous discussions about AI and, and what that can lend to humanity. Um, but she asked what about AI and the arts, not in the way of how will AI free us up to, to be more philosophical and creative, but rather, so I'm going to read her exact comment, usually the ability to make art is a human thing. So how is emotional expression tackled when it is not quantized, like Roboto in music? So that's from my friend Nicole Kirch. Essentially what she's getting after is we might develop these AI to be just as creative as we are, and then is that creativity going to be fundamentally different? Or will it be able to still create art in the way that we know it? Yeah, I, th I think we will see genuine creativity. And I think, like you said, that creativity might be very different. Uh, so the thing that comes to mind is the Go yeah. Championship. I think moving, we might have mentioned this yeah, before. Yeah, moving into the sixth level is yeah. its own level of creativity. I would say it's, it's here. We, we've done it with images. We've done it with Google's DeepMind photography so far. Yeah, the sort of style transfer. Yeah. You can take a photo and sort of make it look like a, a famous painting. Right. I would, I would say it's here. What are your thoughts, Will? This is the kind of thing that as recent as a few years ago, people would have said, well, AI doesn't do the following, poetry, art, music, and so on, sculpture. These things are just as quickly falling like dominoes as the photographs of cats and dogs. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, even for artists themselves, I think this is extraordinary. So the promise that we saw with the Go Championship, when it played Lise Dole, about 40 minutes into the game, the computer made a move 
And, you know, and sort of everybody sort of smacked their head. They said, oh, you know, it must be broken. It's not exactly against the rules, but just no human in the world had ever played that move. And now people have written books on that move. It's a whole new sort of school of thought about what to do with that. So I think that's inspiring in that we might get new ideas for cinematography or sculpture or ceramics. And maybe wouldn't have ever thought, okay, if we mix this type of pottery with this type, that we get this whole new glaze effect and you get real shiny such and such. We might not have thought that. Right, and that's related to like philosophy of art. So if you go to a class on philosophy of art, though, people will wonder, why would you teach philosophy of art? And a lot of art students have asked this to professors here. And you go, well, did you learn about any of these techniques all on your own? Did you develop any of like how to draw a human with more primitive shapes, squares, rectangles, circles, etc.? No, you, well, did you learn about any other form of art? Well, you're taking something and you're going to go, oh, I want to apply this part of that and another part of this. And then you're going to combine that to some new idea. And that synthesis is what you call creativity or art. Yeah, that really, that in the end, everything is a remix, right? right? I mean, we think about, we haven't been alive long enough to have made up all the words that we use, right? So even if we could just somehow linguistically create our own languages, we haven't been around long enough to even do something like that. And then simple concept, like you're saying, you know, triangles and circles, we had to learn to recognize those, right? That's what kindergarten's all about, right? You have to take little tests on which one's the triangle. And we forget that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's really important that we remember that these are apps that were downloaded into us. These words, these ideas, and that we're this remix engine that takes the sort of little app pieces that we're given and we try to build new ones. So as I'd say, it sounds like with this developing a, a more and more creative artist AI, it's going to give us, like in the Go example, it'll give us some form of creativity that we previously did not know existed, but had the capacity to do. You know, any, any human could have moved into the, the move that was unforeseen. And now that we know that it exists or that we have transcended these constructs that humans have, these social norms, in this regular way of behaving, now that some of those norms have been violated, we've kind of cracked open the very fundamental idea of what it's like to, in this case, play Go or create art or write poetry, which opens up a whole new world for us. And so then I guess the theory would be we start to normalize that level or that type of creativity, and then the AI will catch up to us and then go further and, and crack open some, some new hidden place to look at. Mm -hmm. And then that, that, that creativity is constantly changing. You know, when we think of the fundamentals of writing, we think of that as sharpening a quill or the fundamentals of painting. You know, at one point, the creativity was in, oh, we should use linseed oil and well, I'll take this plant or this pigment. And, you know, making the paints was part of the creativity and figuring out oh, how do you make canvas and how do you stretch it out? People had to create those solutions. And now I don't think we would call any artist uncreative because they buy their paint. But now the creativity is pushed to a new layer, right? Sort of a hierarchy of, of creativity. And how would this translate back to, like, the doctors and the medical side? Then maybe they can, you know, start thinking about problems on a, on a richer scale. You know, there's some problems in medicine that, you know, because of the data involved would be impossible. You know, so say we have, you know, something like Alzheimer's disease. Like, how do we know it's not something as simple as, you know, sweet potatoes and turmeric? You know, something. but who would have found it by now? And so it could be very simple things or very subtle patterns, but you would have had to have seen most of the human population to find that. I think that's the promise is that, the AI can be creative with those sorts of you know, high-level descriptions. Like, we couldn't possibly keep track of all the pharmaceutical interactions with all the herbal supplements, with what people have as their diet, with their behavior. To try to correlate all those and then be creative in that space, we can't really juggle that much at one time. And so it would be interesting to think of those grand challenges, being creative in those grand spaces. So one fun thing for programmers nowadays is to attempt to train an AI. Uh, they're not trying to do a very good job just to see how ludicrous of a uh, output they can get. So I, I saw on Facebook that was cross-posted from Reddit and Tumblr and, you know, all the above as a social media turducken, where they had trained an AI on transcripts from Bob Ross uh, painting episodes <laughs> and then had the AI generate its own and it got real weird real quick. It ended with, like, paint oozing out of Bob Ross so if you've not seen it, um, I wish that I could track it down. I don't know that I could, but definitely Google, uh, you know, AI Bob Ross script. It was something else. So now we've kind of moved from AI in society to AI and the individual. And there was a movie called Her that came out maybe five, six, eight, ten years ago. I have lost all sense of time since being in grad school. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away because I haven't actually watched the movie, but I know the premise. So this man's very lonely and has developed this kind of personal relationship with essentially Siri um, or some kind of vocaloid on his phone that's able to 
um, respond to him in intelligent and humanoid types of ways. And so this idea of AI combating loneliness um, and maybe being deployed not so much in, you know, so I saw Google is developing their Google Assistant that can make phone calls to restaurants and make reservations and, and whatnot. It's really pretty wild stuff. The person on the other end, I had a professor I was throwing it to, he was saying that we have not built an AI that can pass the Turing test, which is essentially that a machine will pass the Turing test if you no longer know you're talking to a machine. I pulled up this video for him and we watched it as a class where this Vocaloid from Google is making a reservation, scheduling a haircut, or is calling for a restaurant or whatnot. And he's like, oh, well, the people definitely knew that that was a robot. And I was like, man, at the end of the phone call, like, the woman on the other end wished it a good day. Like, how many times do you wish your automated calls good days? Like, I think we're there. So there's that aspect of it of, you know, we can create these very human-like programs, which is making phone calls so we can schedule haircuts and whatnot. You know, is that going to be beneficial or, or harmful to society at the end of the day? Are we going to lose all of our ability to communicate socially with one another? That is a, a, a fear. But what about for people who don't have as much access to social um, interactions? So one point that was brought up from the high school class was like in a nursing home. Um, in, in a lot of nursing homes, they have patients or they have residents that, that really just don't have anyone. And so would this be something that we could deploy there to give them a sense of companionship? Absolutely. A great movie everyone's got to go watch. It's called Robot and Frank. I think it's still on, on Netflix. And it's about just this. It's about a, sort of somebody who's getting Alzheimer's and their, their family's not close enough, so they have to give him a full-time, you know, robot that keeps track of him. And then they get into some, some mischief. It's, it's a fun movie. But I think it's perfect for something like Alzheimer's. It's very difficult for humans. I mean, people have to have a lot of patience and a lot of training and a big heart to do this kind of thing because it tests our human patience. And I think the thing about robots is they can have infinite patience. Imagine somebody, you know, that's a little confused, say, well, what time is it? And then maybe 30 seconds later, they might ask again. So a human caregiver, that's the, at the end of the day, that's going to tax their emotional state. But a robot or just as chipper, you know, be like, okay, it's, you know, 10 after two, you're good. And they could sort of answer your questions over and over again and never get frustrated, never get tired, never get angry, uh, and never really have its feelings hurt. People that have to care with, with loved ones that have Alzheimer's, it can be very emotionally difficult, you know, to deal with that. Taking in all of this, I want to agree with you, but being on this podcast, I want to disagree with you. Intelligence can so clearly solve most of the problems that we have, if not all of them. Uh, I said before, and I think I may have parroted it from somebody else, uh, intelligence is the source of everything we value, or it can help us get what we value. And I don't disagree. I'm really optimistic about all the small level ideas that we're talking about here, but I'm very concerned if we look at this from a broader context, more than just loneliness or the next medical technology, uh, what do we think is going to happen? So if you don't mind, Will, I want to ask you this. So where do you see AI going in the future, and do you see any problems with it? And before you answer that, I want to explain why I'm asking. Uh, I think better AI could be a, a catastrophe, to quote Stuart Russell again, or Sam Harris, or Nick Bostrom, or Max Tegmark, or any of these other people who are, seem to be intelligent. I mean, it could be a good facade, but they're very worried about it, and I think people should at least start thinking about this now. So I think AI could be a problem. Do you? Well, it's, it'll be a problem for us, but the question is, is it a problem for the people of the future? You know, when I think about a lot of the things that we have now, things like cell phones and email and, and the necessity to check them both constantly, I think these would appear as problems to people a few hundred years ago. If you talk to people about what we have to go through, they'd say, I don't know, I don't know if they'd like that world. When we think of things like Facebook and, you know, the, the privacy is melting daily and all this stuff and there's cameras everywhere. A lot of people, you think of the Native Americans, they were very distrustful of the photography, right? They did not want their, their photograph taken because they felt it captured something of, of their soul and, and maybe they're right, you know, something of their likeness. Think about how difficult that was before to explain likeness to someone. And now you can, well, you've got Sitting Bull right here. You've got a photograph of him. That's a very strange thing. And so I think, you know, almost by definition, we're not going to be too comfortable in the future. Us, here, now. But I think that's kind of okay. I think it's, it's not going to be for us. It's going to be for a different sort of humanity. We have to just make sure. It's more of a question, what do we want our kids to do kind of thing, metaphorically, right? If this is humanity's children, what do we want for them? metaphorically, if we are we going to end up in the home kind of thing, right? Are we, as, a, as humanity, end up in a collective Alzheimer's facility where the robots are like... One thing I think a lot about is, you know, pest control, like ants. You know, how many people think about that? Well, we hire a service, and they come around, and they spray, and take care of the ant population. We don't really concern ourselves too much with the fact that, all right, I have to kill 10,000 ants every couple months right. know, so they don't come into my kitchen. So this is related to the value alignment problem, if you want to hear the nerdy term for it. So the idea behind this, just as a brief background, and I'll let you continue, is that 
these intelligent systems could treat us with similar disregard in the same way that we spray ants with this toxic spray and just wipe them out just because we wanted to develop on that land or it was near our kids play box or something. Could that happen? Do you think that that's possible? I mean, I think to some extent now, I mean, that's that's kind of, yeah, I think this is what's sort of happening. Um, but we have to just be careful about what that looks like in the far future. I mean, it's hard to imagine what humanity looks like over the course of, say, a few hundred or thousand years from now. Even just the AI aside, if we look at just computers, right? Moore's Law, this famous doubling of, of computer capability every 18 months or so. If we take that doubling serious, right? Imagine it's like this thing, you have one piece of rice today, and tomorrow you have two pieces of rice, and then so on. And soon you have like the whole planet work. If we run that Moore's Law out, say 400 years, the whole solar system is one big computer. Right? So this is a strange thing. So it's not even just the robots we have to worry about. It's just this technology itself, mindless or otherwise. Right. Uh, mind aside, if we create an intelligent system, my big concern is how could we possibly have any control over it? Yeah, like, the is gorilla this, problem. Is this so town big we... enough for the two of us kind of thing, right? And I, I think the universe might be big enough for, for both of us. <laughs> um, one thing that's going to happen with the, sort of the robots and the AI is they will sort of slip sideways into time. Right? That what do these computers do? You know, YouTube, it puts every minute, 72 hours get put on YouTube. It's like this backwards time machine kind of thing. And so when you think about that, what, you know, these chips in the lab, we always talk about how they can do, you know, 10 trillion math problems a second. Well, what does that mean, right? That's sort of they've taken a second and they've expanded it into what would be eons for me. And so that's sort of, my hope is that maybe AI would just sort of be happy, quietly living in the corners of space and time. And, you know, why would it even need to interact with us? Do you have any reason to believe that that is likely or that that might occur? Yeah, it so, might be cheaper. So you think if, that, it might be for... easier for the AI just to ignore us kind of thing. Gotcha. We don't affect most of the ants on the planet. The good thing is there are more ants than people, not just by number, but by biomass. So if you add up all of the weight kind of thing in the world, there's way more ants than people on the planet. Ants eat more meat than lions, tigers, and bears combined. I mean, they're, they're still a very formidable force on the planet. But, you know, is that really happy just to sort of have our little anthill while these cities get erected around us? I, I don't think so. I think we want to very much actively control that world. And I'm just as concerned for synthetic biology, for example, modifying humanity as the AI. And then maybe those will just be mixed together. We might not have one of those without the other. So what do you say with uh, people that are extremely concerned about AI safety research? So people have this, a quick notion, oh, we should just regulate it. Mm -hmm. But we don't know how long it's going to develop a system safely. This is the big problem. We don't know what the conditions are, so we can't predict what that would be. I think we just need more people to table. I think especially the people who have these concerns. I think these are the people who need to be having these conversations, building communities in your own area, having discussions, and start addressing these. Because... You know, as technologists and mathematicians and engineers, scientists, we can't approach all these problems. We need all of humanity to think about these problems together. And we only see a tiny little sliver of this from the math side of things. What about the rest of the things? So we need to have these big discussions. When I think about regulation, well, that's like saying we should regulate math. Right. Or we should regulate laptops. Or we should regulate internet. And I think those are very impossible and scary ideas. You know, some kid with a laptop anywhere in the world now can make serious contributions artificial intelligence in the course of a few weeks if they put their mind to it so you know regulations yeah i don't know no that's the know. that's the most common answer people go oh we'll start to regulate it people not in the community but you and others have voiced concerns that that's not necessarily but then there's the possible. implied threat of force now you're sort yeah. of using violence to stop people from doing mathematics that itself would be an ai war people have compared this to being in a race condition like in times of war the manhattan project they consider this a more serious version of that we are creating systems that can think much faster than ourselves. You're comparing the GPU, which can do trillions of math calculations a second, compared to yourself. What can the AGI calculate? Mm -hmm. What can it think about? Um, can it improve upon itself? Do we even have to reach a general intelligence? And the answer is probably no if it can improve itself. And I think the big players in the world are seeing this happen. So after the Go Championship, that week, South Korea put $800 million into AI. Uh, China's going all in on this. Um, Russia has said that they think this is bigger than nuclear weapons. So, yes, this is, this is happening. It's happening in this decade and the next. And that we need as many people as we can to join these conversations so that we can solve this problem. And just like the ants, we're going to have to work together to solve this problem. Gotcha. And this isn't a question to you. This is just a statement for clarity. Uh, what's really precarious about this is that we recognize the necessity to create the safety. But because we're in a race condition, the first person to win takes the whole basket, likely. Um, we're not incentivized to do that. Yeah, this is, a, this is a crazy time we're in. Well, I wanted to kind of end on a happy note, and then 
Steven, we snuck on him. We didn't have enough pessimism in this podcast. <laughs> we could have front-loaded it, though. Well, we the good news is the podcast will continue. That's the, true. The other good news is these systems will help us get the things we value. And one thing that I, I do want to point out is we can think about these high-level issues that are no doubt going to arise in the future, the ethical issues, the security issues. But I do think that there is a small amount of good fortune. If you have the good fortune to not need AI, um, we're lucky enough that we don't really need it right now, or at least we don't know that we need it. We're able to live and we're able to continue on. But that's because we don't know what it can do yet. So we don't know that it can cure cancer. We don't know that it can regulate people with life-threatening diseases. We haven't tried that yet. We haven't seen that success. It's kind of like, imagine you meet someone who has never seen the color blue and trying to describe the color blue. But in this case, instead of describing the color blue, it's describing the cure for cancer. It's not a black and white issue, unfortunately. There are many, many shades of all different types of grays and whites and blacks, and even more color, probably blues as well. It's kind of a nice thing now that we're, we're in this kind of quiet before the storm, that we don't quite yet know what it can do. And in a lot of ways, what we've been working on, the research in AI is in a large part constrained only by our own curiosity. It's nice that we can feel like we don't need it or, or that people can say, you know, I don't want to have Alexa in my home because I don't want something listening to me all the time. That's completely valid. But the same things that are powering Alexa, the same AI, can be the thing that cures cancer and saves lives in the future. It's a double-edged sword, definitely. You opened with being an optimist and you talked about the history. I am an optimistic about that the history, we've been here before. So I, I pulled something up here I want, I want to read real quick. It says, day by day, however, the machines are gaining ground upon us. Day by day, we are becoming more subservient to them. More men are daily bound down as slaves to tend them. More men are daily devoting their energy of their whole lives to the development of mechanical life. The upshot is simply a question of time, but that the time will come when the machines will hold the real supremacy over the world and its inhabitants is of what no person of a truly philosophic mind can for a moment question. Our opinion is that war to the death should be instantly proclaimed against them. Every machine of every short should be destroyed by the well-wisher of his species. Let there no exceptions made, no corner shown. Let us go back at once to the primeval condition of the race. If it is urged that this is impossible under the present condition of human affairs, this once proves that the mischief is already done, that our servitude has commenced in good earnest, and that we have raised a race of beings whom is beyond our power to destroy, and that we are not only enslaved, but absolutely acquiescent in our bondage. What year do you think that was written? I'm going to go with 1800s. Yeah, so this was uh, Darwin Amongst the Machines. June 1863. So we've been here before, and I think that's encouraging. And while that's a little you know, somber of a, of a claim there, I think we need to think, all right, well, they got through this, right? The problem was just as bad then. It was just as scary. It was in their face at the time, and they thought, hey, this is here, and it's getting here. You know, it reminds me of Carl Sagan's quote. He said that we are the custodians of life's meaning. And I think it's up to us now, and we all need your help. Well, with that, we are very much out of time. But I wanted to give that final shout out. Thank you again to the researching high school class from Manhattan High School in Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple. Very thought-provoking questions. We really were able to dwell on them for quite a while, but all really good and very relevant stuff. So with that, we'll sign off and we'll see you again next time. Thank you all for joining us today.